Should environmentalists love hunting? If I'm going to eat food, where is it that I want my food to come from that is the best for animals? And that surprisingly is hunting. That's Brant McDuff. We spend the hour with him talking about his book, The Shotgun Conservationist Why Environmentalists Should Love Hunting. This is Writer's Voice in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Picture a hunter. Who comes to mind? Millionaire playboys or backwoods good old boys? Maybe so. But there's more to it. Because if you love nature, value sustainability, hate the pollution and cruelty of factory farms, you could be a hunter in the making. And if you've never even considered hunting, Brant McDuff's book, The Shotgun Conservationist, shows why you should, or at least support it. I'm a convert. I used to hate the very idea of hunting, but that all changed when I moved into what had been my mother's home before she passed away. Set in the middle of the woods, I noticed that the understory that used to be so abundant and biodiverse was now deeply depleted, decimated by the deer whose population has exploded over the past 30 years. Ground-dwelling birds have gone scarce, among other native species. So, a few years ago, I invited a group of hunters to act like the top predators that we humans long ago did away with in this area. They come every season, bag some deer, and share the meat with me, their families, and local food banks. It so happens that I spoke with Brent McDuff the day before hunting season opened this year. And I was joined by a fledgling hunter, Jordi Casales. Jordi is studying environmental science in college, and he's keenly interested in conservation and sustainable forestry. You'll hear him ask McDuff some questions toward the end of our conversation. Brent McDuff is a taxidermist and conservation historian. He's worked for a variety of museums and aquariums, all while supporting his primary work as a public speaker on natural history. Brent McDuff, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you so much for having me. So this was a very entertaining book to read, actually, which was not something I had been anticipating. (laughs) I'm delighted to hear that. That was a big goal of mine because it could very easily turn into a textbook or, you know, a sort of a dry history. So I wanted to make it as sort of squirrely and entertaining as I could. Squirrely. That could even be a pun, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the, the shotgun conservationist. You write in the introduction to those both curious and ambivalent about hunting. If you compost, drive a hybrid or electric car, enjoy being outdoors, get your groceries from a farmer's market, pride yourself on buying regeneratively raised 100% grass-fed beef or bison and sustainably sourced wild-caught Alaskan seafood, want to be more self-sufficient and love animals, then you are primed to become a hunter or hunting advocate. Now, 
I'm sure a lot of my listeners would be surprised to know that. And you started out adamantly opposed to hunting. Yeah. You were an animal-loving kid. You grew into an animal-loving adult. What was the main driver for you on this path to becoming a hunter? So I'd been trying to figure that out. And something that kind of struck me was, okay, so I was a kid who loved animals. I feel like lots of kids have that one thing that they latch on to. Maybe it's space or uh, the deep sea or something like that, an area of fascination about the world and mine was definitely animals the thing is a lot of a lot of kids if you're really into space you maybe or you're really into dinosaurs maybe you grow out of that or you find something else but i never i never grew out of animals i never found anything else it was the thing that i loved the most and therefore i kept it in my life very closely and as a kid the things that I liked about animals or the things that I wanted to learn about animals were all sort of those sciencey fast facts, like uh, how good is a bear's sense of smell or how fast can a mako shark swim, things like that. And then as I got older, I wanted to learn more about animals within their ecosystems and um, history of different species and movement of species, sort of Darwin-like stuff. And I just kept increasing the issues surrounding animals that I wanted to learn about. And of course, that really quickly brings you to the trouble that most animals are in these days because of habitat loss. So I went from just loving and being interested in the animals themselves to how can I keep animals around for the future? And even ending on that sounds bizarre. How do you get into hunting, especially if the one of the end goals is to kill one? So it was a really long road to get there, but it all kind of culminated in, okay, the best way to keep animals around is to keep habitat around. And if I'm going to eat food, where is it that I want my food to come from that is the best for animals? And that surprisingly is hunting. And again, it goes straight back to habitat. If you make habitat the most important thing, you will keep animals around. So I had to become a habitat lover even more than an animal lover. Well, that makes sense. And yet there are... There are some, uh, as you say in the book, the math is not necessarily intuitive. There are a lot of big questions. For example, I want to go to a, a question about something I think about a lot. The big message of this book, obviously, is hunting is conservation. And I want to talk about deer. Tomorrow, I will welcome onto my land, I live in Long Island on the East End, a couple of hunters who I desperately hope, will help to restore the habitat that I used to know until the mid-80s brought deer to my community. And I wonder if you could talk about deer. I mean, you quote someone who says venison is unequivocally the single most ecologically friendly food that you can eat. Explain that. 
Uh, so that quotation comes from Tamar Haspel, and she's just written a book called To Boldly Grow, which I would also recommend. And that's mostly about her seeing how much food can she truly source on her own from her own gardens, uh, from her local waterways, and from her local woods. So what she means by that is if you think about uh, – we can start with meat, but it applies to a lot of different things. If you go out and you buy food – Whatever it is, you go to the grocery store, you buy a piece of meat, you buy some vegetables, or even if you go to the local farmer's market and you buy some meat or you buy some vegetables. First of all, you're, you're still paying a farmer to farm. So that's number one. If I go and I buy my New York State hunting license and I have to buy hunting equipment, there's an 11% excise tax that is built in to the cost of that hunting equipment. So a portion of the money that I spend on hunting equipment and then the total of the near total of the money I spend on my license, that all goes directly back to state fish and wildlife conservation efforts. So now instead of paying a farmer to farm, I am paying Mother Nature to keep habitat healthy and keep animal populations in check so that they can be healthy. So that's the first big difference is where is your money going? And that that really is the, the biggest crux of it, uh, is that if I have to pay money to get food where do I want that money to go? And for me, I want it to go back to Mother Nature if that's my choice. So that's the biggest part of it. And then when you think about, okay, deer on Long Island, there's – yeah, there's lots of deer on Long Island. Uh, there's deer on Staten Island. There's uh, all these deer in places that people don't really think about it. And the problem is we've got – too many people and too many deer for all of them to live really well together, and especially the deer. Um, if you have overpopulation of any particular species within a concentrated area, it makes it really difficult for that species to thrive. There is sort of a Goldilocks uh, number of animals that you want in a given area so that everybody, all the, all the little cogs and wheels of ecology can work together. And if you have too many deer, well, that means that they're all going to be competing for the same food. And instead of that leading to, okay, the weakest ones will die and the strong ones will survive, instead what happens is Nobody is getting as much nutrition as they need, and so they all become weak. And then if you have a, a tough winter, then more deer could die because of that. So keeping population in balance leads to healthier outcomes for those particular deer specifically who survive. So that's where the, the deer is so environmentally friendly is that you're getting your food from nature and the way that the system is set up, it's done in a manner so that we never deplete totally the amount of animals that we have. It's all highly regulated. So I guess I would like to ask, do you think that hunting alone 
can actually control deer populations. And there is a lot of opposition to hunting in my area. I call them the Bambi lovers, <laughs> who, who don't seem to understand that the deer are actually destroying the habitat of many, many other creatures around here. And we can also talk about places like Yellowstone, for example, where wolves came back and helped to regulate the elk populations there, and which led to restoration of a lot of that habitat. But mm-hmm. you say that there can even be too many wolves. So can you put mm-hmm. this together? You know, people, predators, and prey. Yeah, absolutely. So as far as the your, your neighbors on Long Island are concerned, that's a very typical response. And you get it on a certain level. This is very much how I felt growing up. Um, how dare you go out into the woods and kill this cute deer when you can just go to the grocery store and get your meat. And so people aren't really making that connection of, oh, right, there's, <laughs> there's food in them that are deer. And the difference between the food that you're getting from that deer versus the food that you're paying for and at the grocery store, farmer's market, wherever. So that aspect of it is just – it's just one that people have difficulty seeing because they haven't been confronted with it that often that, oh, right, you eat the deer and not understanding how – that is a, a part of a healthy food cycle that is including people. Now, could you have enough hunting to truly control the numbers? You could. It might not be done by local hunters. For example, in Staten Island, they have a uh, exploding deer population, and the way they wanted to handle that issue was to have in uh, particular sharpshooters who specialize in this sort of work and to cull a certain number of deer so that the remaining deer would be much healthier and to keep the numbers in check that way. Now, there's no reason that those culled deer who are shot by professionals, especially in areas like Staten Island or Long Island, where you have a lot of human population. You know, it's different if you're out in the middle of nowhere, but when you're doing a lot of this work in heavily populated areas, it's good to have professionals if you're going to be shooting that large number of animals. But there's no reason that venison couldn't go to a local food bank or some sort of local school system uh, is something that I, I posited. Now, instead, Staten Island decided to pay a lot of money, over $5 million, to have the deer given vasectomies. So the deer are basically getting, they are getting put to sleep and they are getting neutered um, instead of just having a certain number called. And the reason they did that was because they were pretty sure it was going to be a bunch of legal battle and uh, they would have to fight the people who didn't want the deer shot and that it would end up being a a longer process. So you have people who, they're very concerned about the animals, and that's awesome. I'm thrilled that there are people who really love and are concerned about the animals. But at the same time, it's a subject that they don't really know that much about, and they aren't thinking beyond the deer themselves. 
to the bigger picture. And that is often what becomes troublesome in wildlife management these days is because it is a science, but you have people who just hear about it and they want to put their two cents in, whereas you wouldn't see that happen with other sciences like medicine or space. You know, we don't let Joe Blow down the block plot the next course to Mars with NASA just because he's into space. We have people who are professionals doing that. And that's the same thing with wildlife management. Now, what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry, I got all... Oh, wolves. Yeah, the the, um, the wolf, just to touch briefly on that, reintroductions are awesome. I am thrilled that animals are being reintroduced to their historic ranges. That's great. And wolves have had unbelievable success. The trouble is, again, going back to everyday citizens putting in their two cents, is that when you do get to a population level that is the sustainable population level for today, not a historic range, not a historic number, because we'll never get back to those, not with all the people we have and all the development. But once you get back to a sustainable level that is proper for the amount of habitat for those animals, then yes, you need to begin traditional management strategy again. So while we may not have as many wolves all over America as we once had, the wolves in certain reintroduced populations, they can be doing very well and or too well, and those populations need to be managed to keep things in balance. So numbers can trip people up too. Like you see the same thing in Africa where you might have too many elephants in one area. And that blows people's minds, period, that you could have too many elephants. And it's not that we have too many elephants, period. It's just that there's too many in that one area. And it ends up, just like the deer, denuding the landscape, making it difficult for other species and making it difficult for the people who live there. And then you have human-animal-wildlife conflict. And so if someone could go in and sort of airlift a whole bunch of elephants from one area that's overpopulated to an area that is underpopulated, that would be awesome. But no one's really put up the money for that. Well, there are real wars over this now. For example, in uh, you know in Idaho and uh, around Yellowstone, one of the problems you point out in this book, Brant McDuff, in the Shotgun Conservationist, is that it's population pressure from people who are moving into wildlife habitat. So, I mean, are you saying that we need to, you know, shoot more wolves because people are moving into this habitat? I mean, that's kind of what ends up happening is, you know, if people didn't exist, the animals would do a very good job of managing themselves and nature would figure it all out. And then what happens is we have a bunch of people, and the people think that they're not a part of nature, that people are over here and animals are over there. But we know that's not how the world works. Our existence puts pressure on species and habitat, and people are always going to prioritize the lives of people over animals. So when you have 
people talking about uh, expanding housing for people and where are we going to move everybody and people are moving into places that were traditionally more – especially now that people can work remotely. And we saw this even before COVID as remote work became – easier for people, people would move out of cities. It used to be that you had to have your city job in the city. Well, now you can work from your computer anywhere in the world. So people started moving to, for example, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem out outside of Yellowstone and wanting to be closer to nature. Denver saw a huge uptick in population. And what happens there is, okay, Denver and a lot of other beautiful mountainy places, they have these view plane laws where you're not allowed to build buildings up because that might block the view of nature, a view of the mountains for someone else. So you see these cities begin to expand outward, and now you just have this rampant expansion of suburbs, and that quickly takes away habitat from uh, wildlife. Um, right now, there's a big fight in Aspen, Colorado, because the city wants to build a new ski uh, ski resort. And these ski resorts, they use up critical wintering range for species like bighorn sheep and elk. And that winter time is the most important time for them to uh, to have a safe place and food because that's the most difficult time of their years in the winter. So you end up seeing stuff like, oh, well, this ski resort must not have – skiing is okay for animals because you're not bothering the animals. But if you're a, if you're a hunter, oh, then you're going out and you're, you're shooting a bighorn sheep or you're shooting an elk, whereas they don't understand the greater impact on all of those animals by using up their winter range for a ski slope or their summer range for a mountain bike path. So it's the hunter's job to go in and out of an area of habitat without changing the landscape at all, without being noticed. Hunters don't want pathways. They don't want trails. They want it to be as natural as possible. So it all feeds into sort of these ideas of land use and food and expanding your idea of wildlife ethics beyond an individual to the entirety of the species and its ecosystem. Well, wouldn't it make more sense to control development rather than shoot wolves? Absolutely. I would love to control development more. That just ends up being really difficult because, again, people are going to prioritize people's lives, the places where people can live. And as we continue to spread out into other landscapes, we keep taking up their habitat. So we can either build cities up or people will build out. People still prefer to live in houses than they do apartments. I mean, I get that. I've lived in Brooklyn for 15 years, and I'm desperate to have a little house somewhere far from the city. So that becomes the tricky part, telling people how they can control their own lives while being friendly to nature. But people would rather, they want to look at the mountains. They don't want to protect the mountains. It's a tricky double-edged sword. 
Indeed. And you point out, in fact, I mean, hunters are often seen as the bad guys by those very people who are demanding ski runs and beautiful views. And you said before that we can't go back to the way it was, but you have a startling graph in this book, Brent McDuff, in The Shotgun Conservationist, that compares the populations of certain animals in 1900 and then again in 2017. I mean, we're talking about turkeys and and deer and many others. Talk about what happened and a hunter's role in making that happen. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing graph. So in the early 1900s, when they're doing these these wildlife population surveys, and in the graph I show wild turkey, white-tailed deer, ducks, and other waterfowl, elk, and pronghorn antelope. So before these population charts were made, we are looking at the height of market hunting. Now, this would have been the species that people think of first would be bison and the passenger pigeon. The passenger pigeon, unfortunately, going extinct because of market hunting. And market hunting is, it's basically what it sounds like. It's someone going out into the woods, killing a whole bunch of whatever, ducks, passenger pigeon, bison, and then bringing those animals back to the the market which you know today we might call a farmer's market or something but bringing them back to be sold and they would be sold in shops they would be sold on the side of the road like you might see in new york like you might see someone with a cart full of fruits and vegetables so you could just go out into nature you could shoot a bunch of ducks and then bring them back and sell them now this means you're making a lot of money off of mother nature and you're not really putting anything back you just go out and take and then you go out and take and then you go out and take and there's no system in place to make sure that those species are kept in a sustainable balance at that time, it was really kind of thought that nature was just bottomless, that you could just take whatever you wanted and eh, they'd repopulate. Now, they learned relatively quickly that that was not the case. You know, bison went from 30 to 60 million bison to somewhere in the 500s, like 500 animals. So it's very easy to hunt an entire species to extinction. So at the end of the 1800s, this was becoming very apparent that you couldn't just keep taking from nature endlessly. And that was when laws started to be put in place to end market hunting. Market hunting wasn't just for food, you know, for the bison, it might have been for their pelts. I talk a lot about the market for birds' feathers for ladies' hats that were very popular in the Victorian era. And this is how we get our very first national wildlife refuge, Pelican Island, which was specifically protected to save the birds that lived there. So when market hunting ended, there were some species that just weren't going to come back. The passenger pigeon was going to go extinct. And these other populations were... I mean, they were so small, maybe a uh, hundred, a hundred thousand wild turkey 
versus in 2017, there were 7 million. And the the way that those populations were able to rebound was putting laws not only to end market hunting completely, but also to regulate the hunting that was done. And this, bizarrely, is how we get the term trophy hunting. Trophy hunting is very misunderstood by people, but the term originated because you are being very, very selective about the animal that you shoot. So instead of going out and just shooting whatever and however many, you would only shoot one and you would choose that animal very specifically. And often you wanted these bigger older males. You wouldn't shoot any females, and you wouldn't shoot any younger males because you need those young males to grow up big and strong and pass on their genes as we understood genetic diversity and continuing the species for the next generation. So that's where trophy hunting comes from, and that's also where the term sport and sporting comes from in terms of hunting. So it's not a sport like soccer is a sport. It's sport as in the word sporting, as in giving the animals a sporting chance of escaping you. And that is something that they did not have in the days of market hunting because you would use these crazy these crazy guns that were like mini cannons. You would use these giant drop nets. Basically, the animals didn't have a way to escape. And so if you're a real hunter, it should be you versus the animal, and the animal should have just as much of a chance of getting away from you as they do getting away from a wolf or a cougar or any other predator. And that is where sporting and trophy, that's where those terms come from. When people think of, well, the hunter still has an advantage because they have a gun and, or, a, you know, or a bow, and the animals don't have that. And that's true. But when you look at most predator-prey relationships, the predators absolutely have way more hardware on them than the prey do. Prey species have their own set of escape tactics, and that's their ears, their eyes, their nose. And I've certainly been an unsuccessful hunter more than a successful hunter because those animals are much better at being prey than I am at being a predator. That's their whole job is to escape stuff that's hunting them. So it does become a fair fight more than, than people think of it. Brant McDuff. Stay tuned for more of our conversation after the break. Josh Turner, Backwoods Boy. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. We're spending the hour with conservationist and hunter Brant McDuff talking about his book, The Shotgun Conservationist. Let's get back to our conversation. So, uh, Brant McDuff, your book is titled The Shotgun Conservationist, and yet I know that the hunters who hunt on my land are using bows, wouldn't it be fair to the animals not to use a shotgun? Why a shotgun? Why a bow? Would you use them in different times? How do people make the choice? I am both a bow hunter and a rifle hunter, as well as a shotgun. So a shotgun you're going to use in very specific instances. That might be for upland birds or waterfowl, animals that you're definitely not going to shoot at with a bow. It is possible. I've seen 
people do it, but you have to be very, very, very good. The difference between using a bow and using a rifle, a lot of that will come down to where you're hunting. So especially in populated areas like Long Island, you use a bow because an arrow doesn't fly very far. So that way it just makes it extra safe when you're hunting in populated areas. The first deer that I ever shot was in a very populated area of New Jersey. It was basically the suburbs. And so you use a bow there because it's it's safer than using a rifle or a, a shotgun that has a slug in it. So those are safer for populated areas, but also a bow isn't noisy. So using a bow in populated areas doesn't bother your neighbors. In terms of using a rifle, you would use a rifle in areas where you have longer distances. So like people hunting in the West, you're more likely to use a rifle to cover a greater distance. And then these issues of distance and weaponry, they're all sort of tackled in the fair chase model. And Fair Chase came out of the Boone and Crockett Club, which was started by Teddy and George Bird Grinnell at the American Museum of Natural History. There's a lot of fascinating history, um, the history of conservation in America. So much of it came out of the people working specifically at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. It's kind of a wonderland of conservation history uh, origins. But they originated this idea of fair chase, and that is also a part of the history of sport and sporting and trophy and the end of market hunting and the idea of making sure whenever you're hunting, the animal has a fair chance at escaping the hunter. So a lot of choice in what you're using and how you're using it, that's going to come down to to fair chase ethics, we call it, and your your choice of of weapon. Now the bows, bows have the early part of the season. There are also different ways that the seasons are broken up for hunters. People still hunt with flintlocks and those sort of um muzzle loader guns where you load the rifle through the muzzle like an old-timey musket. People still hunt with those. They have a, a shorter season at the end of the... It's usually at the end of hunting seasons. And again, that is just to keep different sort of hunting traditions that give animals a, a fair chance at, at escape and blocking up the different parts of the season for implements that different hunters want to use. Before we began this interview, we were on uh, video, and I saw that in the background you have a lot of uh, taxidermied animals. You write in the book about taxidermy. What's your fascination with that? You know, it just starts from me loving animals and being crazy about them, and I always loved the the habitat dioramas at natural history museums. My dad took me to the AMNH, that's the American Museum of Natural History, when I was a little kid, and the habitat dioramas were by far my favorite thing. And I just kind of fell into this fascination with taxidermy that you could have 
a real animal in your house. It may not be alive, but it was this real animal and you could see it up close and admire its beautiful features, its feathers. And uh, most of the taxidermy that I have, because I've been uh, collecting for so long, they're very old pieces. So I think the the white-tailed deer head that you saw, he's just one of the, the grisliest old beat up pieces of taxidermy I've ever seen. And I, and I wanted him cause I kind of wanted him to have a good home. I was like, Oh boy, you've been through the ringer. He was an old piece of taxidermy. It wasn't particularly done great. And so I wanted to make sure he had a good home. So I always end up with these sort of Island of uh, lost toys pieces in my house. Um, I also have a, a collection of horns and antlers because I just find them fascinating. Uh, the way antlers grow is truly remarkable. They're the only regenerative mammal tissue. They are growing a real bone on the top of their head. And then at the end of the winter, it just falls right off. It's incredible. And the the way antlers grow throughout the season, how quickly they grow for adult males. So in elk, if you think about those giant racks on the head of an elk or the head of a moose, those can be growing an inch a day. And a younger elk, um, like a one, one and a half year old elk, they'll just grow these teeny tiny little spike antlers. Um, they'll still be covered in velvet by the time the, the mature bull's antlers have, have hardened up. And that's because the, the younger males are using so much energy to grow big and strong to survive their early winters. And then when they get older and they get ready to breed, then they want to put more bodily effort into growing their headgear and attracting a mate. So just seeing how their antlers develop throughout their lifespan is absolutely fascinating to me. I think they're beautiful and totally magical. The idea of taxidermy never bothered me because even though the animals were dead, I liked that they were around forever. You know, no no animal lives forever. So if something was going to die and that was going to be food, well, why wouldn't you want to preserve it? There's another picture, an illustration that I have in my book of someone's dining room. And in the one dining room, you see taxidermy heads on the wall, like a, a ram and a deer and a turkey. And then in the other home, you see a taxidermy head of a cow and a chicken and a sheep or a pig. So I'm just kind of showing there back to back how people would kind of think it was weird if you had a the the mounted head of a pig, like a farm pig um, or a cow, how, how weird that would be in someone's house. But people go through pigs and cows and chickens all day long, and they don't think twice about them. They're seen as a very disposable animal, which is kind of sad. Um, whereas the hunter, they take so much pride and reverence in the animals that they pursue. And I always found that very attractive, that 
these people are just kind of obsessed with these animals and they're, they're desperate to see them in the wild and they want to keep them around after they're dead. Um, there's, there was a, a real reverence there that I saw from hunters that I didn't see from anyone who was a casual meat eater. Hmm. Well, hunting, I know that it can be hard to find new hunters. And, and Jordi here, uh, Jordi Casales, who is joining me on this interview today, he's got a question for you. Hi. So um, I just have a couple of questions. You know, like I just started school and I'm studying environmental science. And this is partly how I got into hunting, partly because of that and also because of my friend Francesca right here. I'm I'm just wanted to ask, you know, because... I live in a city like you. I'm from Brooklyn and I live there. And when I bring up the topic of hunting to a lot of my friends, it, 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 it kind of weirds them out in, in lots of ways. But I try to explain it to them from a scientific perspective. Would you say, I want to ask you, like, do you think it's accurate to say that since in a place like, for example, Long Island or the suburbs of New Jersey, deer don't have the natural predators that they used to have? Would, would you say that it's accurate that hunters kind of fill in that void? Absolutely. Yeah. In places with in in places where you just see more people and especially a lot of deer, you don't see as many as many predators. You're not going to see a, you know, a, a pack of wolves or, uh, you know, you see you see black bear, but black bear, they're not really they'll be predatory towards fawns in the spring, usually. And we have coyotes and stuff, but not the numbers that keep up with the way deer repopulate. So hunters can both fill in the gap, but you know it doesn't surprise me at all that you're studying environmental science because nearly every single one of the wildlife biologists who I know and people who work for state fish and wildlife agencies, they do they one of two things happens. Either they wanted to become a conservation biologist or a conservation officer because they were already a hunter and wanted to maintain that connection to the land, or they are studying wildlife biology and habitats and ecosystems, and then they become a hunter because they're studying those things. And I see that so often. I would say nearly all of the people who I know who are in those fields of state fish and game agencies, uh, biologists, they are either they were hunters and that's what brought them there, or they became hunters because of the work that they were doing. And I think a lot of people who, like your friends maybe, when you, especially in a city, if you're not really living as a part of nature, if you are one of those people, and it's very common to see nature as this separate thing, as this other, then that just sort of snowballs on itself. And then when you think of hunting, it does seem kind of bizarre. It seems so separate from the food question. People don't really think about it in terms of food anymore. So immediately it's like, what? Why? So I've been very lucky, and when people have those same kind of questions, either because they know me or they trust me or they've heard about the book or they've just listened to one of the lectures that I give, they have these very thoughtful 
questions as if it's sort of dawned on them for the first time, like, oh, yeah, we've been hunting for all of our existence as humans. And that is when we think about doing stuff the natural way. Everyone's into like, whatever is natural. Oh, this is a natural shampoo. I get my food from the farmer's market and they use regenerative grazing practices. Like, that's great. We're always trying to get back to this this natural process and everyone's very proud of the naturalness of their lives. And then you bring up hunting and they kind of forget that uh, that's about as natural as it gets in terms of if you're going out and acquiring meat to put away to feed yourself, to feed your family, to feed your friends. It doesn't really get more natural than that. And it's more a problem of perception that people are living without nature more. We're more inside. It's tricky for parents to let their kids go run around the woods. That used to be a very normal, common thing. And now, you know, maybe parents are a little bit more nervous about letting their kids play outside. And especially if you live in the city, you're just not exposed to that um, as often. So it can seem this thing that is the most natural in human history can seem very foreign. And I, I find that fascinating, but also kind of sad. Mm. And Jordy mentioned his friends, and that brings me to my last question. How can hunting help to bridge the social and political divides that we have so much in this country? I mean, his friends you know, might think that hunting is something only – Trump supporters do. So how can it help to bridge those divides? Yeah, absolutely. I find this to be one of the most fascinating topics, the the intersection between hunting and politics. And it used to not really be a thing. It has become more of a thing as of course so many things have as we become more divided politically in this country and around the world, frankly. So it used to not really be a politically divided issue. Everyone sort of hunted. When when people were hunting in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, these sort of boom eras of hunting in America, you were just kind of a hunter. It wasn't related to your politics. Now, um, as you say, it very much does have that sort of stink of what people might think of as this very conservative right-wing bent. But, and I, I find the the trickiness in sort of two parts that, number one, even if the majority of hunters in America are Republican or conservative or however we want to put it, that doesn't change how the function of hunting works in America. It puts truly billions of dollars into habitat and wildlife conservation. So the people paying into it, if you buy a duck stamp, and anybody can buy a duck stamp, it's mostly hunters who buy them. But that's money going directly into wetland conservation. And the excise taxes that come from hunting equipment, the license sales, all of that economy is being paid into no matter who the person is who does it. So that's kind of the first part. Well, maybe we have this perception, but 
we got to forget about that because that's not the important part. The important part is how does the system function? Is it functioning? And what are we getting out of it? And it's functioning amazing. America has the most fantastic wildlife conservation structure in the entire world because it's built right into our economy. No one else has that. I talk a lot about the economics of hunting around the world and it it works. You know, don't get me started on Africa and Mongolia and all these different places around the world where the economics of hunting are truly important to protecting habitats and species, but in America, it is built right into how our money gets spent, and that's unique. The other part of it is, well, unfortunately, if you want to change that narrative, we got to be part of a group who's changing that narrative, and that takes some work, but we are out there. I openly talk about how I'm, you know, some Brooklyn lefty, and I'm not the only one. The majority of my hunting pals in New York City fit that bill too. And you'll find that in a lot of places that are sort of adjacent to liberal cities um, out West and around America, you will find they're often called locavore hunters or people who are getting into hunting because they want to be connected to animals and nature and they want to be sourcing their food from the wild. I always just call hunting foraging for meat because you see these same sorts of people who they get into foraging. They like foraging for mushrooms or ramps. And then it, it becomes this sort of next, wow, there are foods that I can source from the wild. And when it comes to hunting, you're actually paying back into the habitat, which you do not do when you go foraging. So if you go foraging for mushrooms, you're just taking some mushrooms off the landscape, and it's fine. And for the most part, the landscape can regrow the ramps as long as you source them correctly without ripping them up by the roots. But the animals, they are really built into the conservation structure to make sure we're not taking too many and that we're taking the right ones so that they can come back year after year and they bring value to the landscape in a way that the like sunshine and rainbows, unicorn kisses idea of nature doesn't. That's all well and good, and I love that, and I've got that inside of me, but that doesn't pay the bills for mother nature. Jordy, do you have another question? Yeah. Something that was brought up during my, my hunter safety education course was that hunting is actually on the decline and has partly to do with this new younger generation that doesn't really want to get involved with it because of the stigma or whatever it could be. How do you think young people can get involved with hunting? It's, I mean, it's a great question, and it's one that all of these different conservation organizations are trying to figure out because they know that's how a lot of the conservation bread gets buttered in this country is with hunting dollars. So it's a, it's not, you know, okay, if, if soccer goes on the decline and that's the end of soccer, that's a bummer for the people who play it, but, you know, that's just sort of its own economy that might live and die. But the decline in hunting is worrying for conservationists because so much of the money, and not just money, but also that connection that brings volunteers, it brings involvement in nature comes from. 
so there's part of it where people are like, well, can't you just do that without hunting? And sure, people do. But there is something about having that connection and sort of paying into it with your time, your your volunteer time, your energy, that effort, that sort of sweat equity, that a decline in that would really be a problem for how people are connecting and being involved with nature. Younger people, if they're spending more time inside, spending more time online, it's difficult to get into hunting. First of all, you have to think of it. Very few people sit up one day and go, you know what, I think I'm going to get into hunting. There's got to be something there that triggers, uh, no pun intended, an interest in this and gets people activated to learn. It's a lot to learn. It's difficult to do. It's hard. And it's extremely time-consuming. And it can cost a lot of money. You can do it on the cheap, but that requires even more knowledge. It's a big investment, both in your time and money. So it's harder for young people to pick up. They have to find people to teach them. They have to know how to find people. So between the idea that it is becoming less favorable with just the public, hunting generally has about an 80% support rate among people. Number one, people don't really think about it. There's also a big difference in how that question is phrased. If you say, do you support people who go hunt for food? Most people say, yeah. I mean, you know, I go to a restaurant and eat chicken wings, and so might as well support hunting for food. And then if if you were to say, do you support hunting? And then maybe people don't know how to answer that, or they think they think of someone lion hunting in Africa, or they're taking it on a greater scale than they kind of know what to do with. And so people aren't really sure. They think it's mean or they think it's bad for nature or bad for animals or bad for the environment. And that's all a totally understandable place to come from if you have zero background in the issue. So that becomes really the trickiest part is not necessarily getting more people into hunting, but getting more hunting advocates or just people who are more well-versed in what hunting means in America, what hunting means for the wildlife economy, and how hunting protects species and habitats. In the time that we have left, if you had one piece of advice to give to Jordy or any other young person about how to get into hunting, what would that be? And then I'm going to ask you to send me some links that we can put on our website for those of our listeners who might be interested in learning more. So there are some amazing resources out there that are Put out by by different groups like the National Wildlife Federation, the Aldo Leopold Foundation. Aldo Leopold was one of our earliest conservationists. He really put down some of the structure for conservation in America. And Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is a great group to join if you're new and you have questions. You don't even have to be a member. Just reach out to someone. There are a lot of resources out there and a a little bit of Googling between 
how do I start hunting or um, hunting for beginners or look up your state, really you should go to whatever state you're in. You should look up your own fish and wildlife agency. You'll be able to get in touch with conservation officers and they can point you in some directions, but a lot of these conservation groups do have beginner level organizations to help people sort of get their foot in the door. Bo, B-O-W, is becoming an outdoors woman. And I believe that's supported by the National Wildlife Federation. And a lot of these different groups have specific beginner-friendly courses. And you don't necessarily have to take your hunter's safety education uh, right away. You can join these groups, learn more, and then take your hunter's ed. Uh, a lot of hunter's ed is online. You can start there. But it is a really fascinating topic to learn more about. And there are a lot of friendly people out there who are excited about teaching and talking to people about it. I, there's a You might not believe it, but in New York City, there's a very active group of hunters and anglers, and we get together all the time for pint nights and little events, and we built wood duck boxes so that wood ducks could safely nest in marshes, and we do all kinds of fun events, and it's it's all about meeting a group of people who like to be outdoors, like animals, and want to support conservation in America. Oh, that's terrific. Well, Brent McDuff, it's been terrific to talk with you about your book, The Shotgun Conservationist, Why Environmentalists Should Love Hunting. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Um, I just want to say thank you for all your knowledge. It's really valuable to someone like me who's just getting into it. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I love talking to people about this stuff. I find it fascinating, and I love hearing people's questions. And for the most part, you know, even though it is a touchy subject for a lot of people, I find that people are also really fascinated by it, and they are eager to have the conversation, and they are eager to learn more. So it's always, it's always a good time on, on my side. So thank you. Brant McDuff. You'll find a link to an excerpt from The Shotgun Conservationist at writersvoice.net. You'll also find some links to more information about hunting and conservation. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to find more great content, including web-only features like interview transcripts and extended interviews. If you missed any part of this episode or just want to listen again, Subscribe to the Writer's Voice podcast with your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a great review. It really helps to spread the word. Mm-hmm.